Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. We are in week six this morning of our sermon series called Who's Your One? Who's Your One? And if you have been here the last several weeks, then you know we have been looking at some really incredible and amazing one-on-one conversations in God's Word where because of the obedience of the one, someone's life is changed forever. If this morning is your first time here at New Beginnings, here's what this series is all about. It's all about acknowledging and accepting the call of God to personal evangelism. Acknowledging and accepting the call of God to personal evangelism. The very first week when we began this series, we began in Matthew chapter 28, which is the Great Commission. These are some of the last words that Jesus ever said to his disciples and to his people and that he gave us. And in that, he gave us the call to go and make what? Disciples. To go and make disciples. And that is the heartbeat of this series. That is the heartbeat of this church. To take the good news of Jesus Christ into the lost world around us and with the light of life, push back the darkness. And I want to see disciples of Jesus Christ made all over this city. And one of the things I've loved about this Hoosier One is we've seen God use some very ordinary people to do some very extraordinary things. And that's the prayer I have for myself, that God would use a very ordinary person like me to do something extraordinary for the kingdom. We saw it two weeks ago in the life of Philip. If you remember, Philip was called as a deacon. He was called to serve the tables, to make sure food was being distributed evenly, all of these things. But through a pattern of obedience, through a pattern of faithfulness, Philip was trusted with more and more and more. And ultimately, we see him as one of the greatest evangelists in all of Scripture. Matter of fact, we learned that the entire continent of Africa received the gospel because of the obedience of Philip. And so that's how I want God to use me. That's how I want him to use you. I want us to come together. Let's all admit, we're ordinary people. We mess up. But in the gospel, through the person of Jesus Christ, we can be used to do extraordinary things. And I believe, church, it can begin with one person. One person. So we've, in this series, we've given this uh, personal evangelism challenge or effort called Who's Your One? And here's the idea, that every single one of us, every single one of us have one person, one that we know, that, we, that they're in our circles of influence, they're in our job, they're, they're at our school, they're our neighbor, they're across the street, they're a relative, maybe they're in our home. One person that we would be willing to share the gospel with, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and invite them into a personal relationship with Jesus The vision of New Beginnings is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and then impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to know our pastors and elders have a vision that this city, Longview, or city, New Diana, 
Gilmer, uh, Big Sandy, Kilgore, Hallsville, all around. We have a vision to see the city transformed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's where that begins, right here in this room. It begins right here with you and I linking arms, standing in a covenant um, before God and with one another that we are going to get our one, we are going to pray for our one, and we are going to engage our one with the good news of Jesus and invite them into that personal relationship. I have my one. I have my one. The pastors and the staff of New Beginnings, both in Spring Hill and in Gilmer, we have our one. Do you have yours? Do you have your one? Here's what I would ask you to do. If you do, then you're going to see some of these cards uh, in the chair back in front of you also. And what I would want you to do is just write the name of your one on that card and then tear off the, the top part, put it in your Bible, write the name of the one on the bottom part as well, put this part in the basket. That's what these names are back here on the wall. These names back here on the wall are names that you have submitted, that you are praying for. And so guess what? We're praying over those names too. And so if you have your one, write their names down, put this part in the offering basket. We want to pray with you. If you do not, then I am praying this morning and I am asking you, jump in on this with us. Get before the Lord. You know someone who is far from God. So join this challenge with us and let's see God transform our city with the gospel. Amen. All right. With that in mind, I want you to grab your Bible. Go with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 9. This morning, we're going to be looking at the one-on-one -on -one conversation that Jesus had with Matthew that he called to be a disciple, changed his life forever. Let me give you a little bit of background. Jesus has already begun his public ministry. Uh, at this point, he has been tempted in the wilderness. He's preached the greatest message ever, which was the Sermon on the Mount. He has already begun healing. He's cleansed lepers. He's healed diseases. He's cast out unclean spirits. He's calmed the storms, all the while declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He's been calling disciples to himself to come and follow, and now we see him calling Matthew. So if you look at Matthew chapter 9, let's begin in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our confession this morning is that we need you. And God, I am praying that you would illuminate your word in our hearts today and in our minds. God, your word is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I believe that your word has the power to move, to correct, to teach uh, all that we need uh, to live holy lives. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would speak through me, that you would cause your words to be on display and your work to be on display among us. And uh, Father, I just pray 
that you would do that redemptive work this morning, that it would begin now. Illuminate your word, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we see this kind of unexpected and uh, uh, kind of amazing encounter that Jesus has with Matthew and with the Pharisees. But in this moment, however, Matthew is the one that Jesus has eyes for. He has locked in to Matthew, and we see kind of this flow of conversation. So the questions that I want us to ask ourselves before we jump in is this. What is it that, that we need to take away from this moment? What is Jesus teaching us about the gospel, and what is he calling us to do? And I think there are three takeaways that I want you to have, and I know you're shocked that a Baptist preacher has three things he wants you to remember. I'm afraid if there were two, you wouldn't know how to act, and I'm afraid if there were four, you'd get up and leave. So I'm going to go with three this morning. And uh, so there are three takeaways that I think we have from God's Word this morning. Here's the first. The first thing I think we see is this, that the gospel sees what others do not see. The gospel sees what others do not see. Look again right there at verse 9 of Matthew 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Do you see that? Jesus saw Matthew. It's easy to miss, but there is a truth here that we must apprehend. Jesus saw him right where he was, right in the middle of what he was doing. Jesus, in, in, in the power of the gospel, in the power of the good news that he had come to proclaim, was able to see what others did not. What do I mean by this? Matthew, who, by the way, is also called Levi. If you read Mark and Luke, you read these accounts of Matthew, he's, he's also called Levi. Matthew was a tax collector. What does that mean? It means he worked for the Roman government. He worked for the Roman government. And the Roman system of collecting taxes was both ingenious and ripe for corruption. Here's what they would do. The Roman government would pick someone from among the people to collect the taxes because they believed people would be more inclined to pay their taxes without incident, without rebellion, if they were doing that with someone from among their own people. That's the genius part. Here's the other part. They didn't care how much the person collected as long as Rome got their tax revenue. So what would happen? So the tax collector would pad the taxes. He would take in more than what was necessary, and he would keep that for himself, which means tax collectors were notoriously crooked and corrupt. And Matthew was no exception. And listen, the more corrupt the tax collector became, the more alienated he would be from his own people. Matthew's own people looked at him as a social pariah. They looked at him as an outcast. He was not allowed to come to temple. He was not allowed to fellowship with them because he was a betrayer of his own people. And yet Jesus saw him. He saw him. Jesus had eyes for the lost. He had eyes for the desperate. He had eyes for the hurting and for the lonely, even those who hid it well. And listen, Matthew would have been one who could hide it well. What do I mean? Matthew was not hurting for money. Matthew probably had on the nice robes, sitting at a nice table, stacks of money all around, people paying their taxes. He's keeping what he wants, sending Rome what they have to have, has a pretty good living. Matthew had all the trappings 
of looking the part of being, of doing just fine. Boy, we tend to fall into that, don't we? But Jesus looked past the robes. He looked past the man who was telling everyone else what to do. He looked past a pile of money, and what did he see? He saw right to the heart of him. Can I tell you this morning, you don't have to waste another ounce of energy trying to doll yourself up for Jesus. He sees right to the heart. He sees right to the heart. And there is nothing you can do to clean yourself up, to make you more desirable to him. He loves you right where you are. And the gospel sees what no one else can see. Jesus sees Matthew. He sees past what everyone else sees right to the heart of the matter. And that is what he does in us. Why? Because Jesus had eyes for the lost. This morning... Don't waste your energy. Don't wa- it's exhausting trying to look like something we aren't. Boy, I've spent time doing that. I don't want to anymore. I don't want to anymore. Jesus had eyes for the lost. He saw what others did not see. So what was it then in Matthew? How could it be that Jesus would look on this crooked, robbing tax collector and extend to him the gift of salvation? There were certainly better candidates standing around. There were Jews who were working to keep the law. There were good men and women who were doing the best they could to honor God and live good lives. Matthew's own people had rejected him. They worked to look past him, to ignore him, to keep him at a distance. Did you know that because Matthew was a tax collector, because he worked for the Roman government, and because he was considered a betrayer of his own people... His testimony would not even be allowed in a Jewish court. Do you know that? That's how outcast this guy was. This was a Jewish man, a Hebrew man, and his word would not be allowed in a Jewish court. That's how outside of his own people he was. He was beholding to the power of Rome. He was a slave to Rome, and yet Jesus saw him. You know, when I was uh, in late high school, I had a job at an uh, auto repair shop, which is hilarious because I don't auto repair anything. And uh, <laughs> that's not a joke. If YouTube can't tell me how to fix it, I can't do it. And so, um, but I, had, I worked for a few weeks uh, at this auto repair shop. And the reason I worked there for a few weeks was because after a few weeks, I was lovingly invited to work somewhere else, which I thought was really sweet of them when uh, they realized I was probably costing them more money than I was making them. And so they invited me to go find a different job. And so, um, but while I was there, in that few weeks, there was a man that I worked with, a mechanic named Frank. And Frank had the ability to see what I could not see. Frank had the ability to pop a hood on a vehicle and look in and see a problem. When I looked at it, it just looked like a giant Rubik's Cube made of screws and bolts that I would never figure out. And he looked at it, and he, some of you have that ability. You can pop the hood on a vehicle. You can go, oh, yeah, there, there's the issue. I don't have that. Frank had that. He could see what I couldn't see. I remember coming into work one day, and Frank was sitting on the floor. He had dropped the engine out of this vehicle, and he had taken a milk jug and cut the top half off of it. So he just had this open milk jug. And he's disassembling this engine, and he's just tossing in all the, all the nuts and bolts and screws into this milk jug, just tossing them in. No pattern, not, not organized, just throwing them in there. 
And he gets to the part of the engine he wants to repair. He deals with that. And then he starts taking them back out. He knows where every single one goes. He knows exactly how to do it. And I just stood there amazed. And my, I was amazed because he was able to see what I could not see. But listen to me, that's what the gospel in us does. It opens our eyes to see what others will not see. And at this moment, Jesus sees someone that everyone else looks past. He sees Matthew. Why does he have eyes for Matthew in this moment? I think it's this right here. I think that Jesus is wanting to teach Matthew, to teach his disciples, to teach the Pharisees, and to teach us something critically important, and that is this, that the gospel is propelled by mercy and not merit. The gospel is propelled by mercy and not merit. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait for you to be worthy of the gospel before he extended it to you? The gospel is propelled by, it is fueled by mercy and not merit. Look at what Jesus says in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 9. The Pharisees question what he's doing there. Why are you sitting with these people, these outcasts, these sinners? And Jesus says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is quoting an Old Testament prophet. He's quoting Hosea from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Anytime you see steadfast love, it and the word mercy are interchangeable. They are often used in different places in God's word, but they mean the same thing. So what does Jesus do when they question him about him being in this room with tax collectors and sinners. He quotes an Old Testament prophet that they would have been very familiar with and says, you don't even know what your own prophets mean. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this idea of, of mercy over merit is a biblical principle that is as old as Scripture and we find it finds its highest maturation in the person of Jesus Christ. There are two little verses I want you to grab a hold of real quick. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, which says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in mercy. And then James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But listen to the second part of the verse. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So somebody in here needs to hear this morning. That your Lord God delights in showing mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, thanks be to God that mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen to me, believer. God's not mad at you. He's not angry with you. Some of you feel far from God because you're convinced 
your sin has caused him to be angry with you or the fact that you messed up, you did that thing again, you said that thing again, you've had this thought pattern and it hasn't been taken captive, all of this and somehow now God is angry and I feel far from you. That is a you issue because God has said, I delight in showing you mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. How do I know that's true? Because according to his word, when I woke up this morning, his mercy, not his judgment, was new for me. He said, my mercy is new for you every morning. I don't renew my anger for you. I don't renew judgment. I don't renew wrath. I renew mercy because my gospel is propelled. It is jet-fueled. It is motivated. It is inspired. It is built on mercy and not merit. I don't know who needed to hear that your God loves you and he delights in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment, but it is true for you today. It is true for you today. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Look at this with me. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's all of us, by the way. One through three, everybody, every single one of us are in that boat. But, look at verse four, but God being rich in what? Come on now. He delights in showing mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And your, his mercy was new for you this morning. But God being rich in what? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. We were dead in our sin separated from him, following the prince and the power of this world, living in our flesh, carrying out whatever our body and mind wanted, children of wrath. That is where God found me. That is where God found you. That is where God found Matthew. So doesn't it make sense then that in that place of rebellion, in that place of wickedness, in that place of darkness, in that place of addiction, that's where he's going to find everyone who comes to faith in him. That is where we all are. Why? Because we all have the same disease. There's just those who have found the physician and those who haven't. We cannot allow, whew, we cannot allow someone's current sinful condition to dictate whether or not we will share the gospel with them. What do I mean by that? I mean, I have been guilty of holding back, of not sharing, of not talking, of not engaging, of pushing away because someone's behavior wasn't good enough. Have you ever gotten frustrated with somebody who was lost because they acted lost? <laughs> Isn't that silly? Right? You just want to yell at, they're lost. Of course they're going to act lost. And they're going to continue to act that way until we begin to see what others do not see and engage them with the gospel. Listen, the gospel is propelled by mercy, not by merit. And it positions us to see what others do.
do not see. Here's the second thing I want, second thing I want you to see this morning, and that is this. The gospel goes where others will not go. The gospel goes where others will not go. Look at verse 10 there, back in Matthew chapter 9. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Luke records this same uh, exchange of Jesus calling Matthew and going to his house. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 5, verse 29. And Levi, remember Matthew and Levi are the same person. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Why is it important to note that Jesus went to Matthew's house? That he ate at his table, that he, that he ate with him and other tax collectors. Because Jesus was compelled to go where others would not go. And listen, the gospel is always going to compel us as believers in Jesus Christ to go where others will not. Remember who Matthew was. We just talked about this a few moments ago. He was an outcast. He was a social pariah. He was a betrayer of his own people. The Jewish people looked on him and said, you're not even allowed in our community. The Pharisees had already passed judgment on him, and yet here is Jesus reclining at his table with a bunch of his crooked buddies. This is significant because in the Jewish culture, when you shared a meal with someone, it implied an identity and a connection to that person. When you invited them into your home or you went into their home, there was, there was an understood relationship and bond that you shared with them. And so when Jesus entered Matthew's house, it was not only a declaration of his connection to Matthew, but it was also a clear declaration of his kingdom purpose, which was to seek and save the lost. And how could, how could he save those he was unwilling to draw near to? So believer, let me, let me ask you a question. And know that I'm asking myself the same question. How can we honestly say on one hand, we want to see a work done in our community and on the other not be willing to go where they are and share the gospel? How, how can we do that? Jesus went to Matt. This isn't the first sinner's house he went to. You remember when we talked about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, you come down. Remember, for I'm going to your house too. Remember that? And he, and he went to his house too. Why? Because Jesus would go where others would not go. Because he recognized that is how they're going to come. That's how they're going to hear. That's how they're going to know. That's how they're going to believe in what I've come to do and receive the good gift of salvation and receive this mercy-propelled gospel as I'm going to go where no one else is willing to go. And we see this as a pattern in the life of Jesus. He went to the woman at the well. He went and touched the man with leprosy. He went to the boy with the unclean spirit and cast it out. He went to the house of Zacchaeus. He went to the tax booth to call Matthew. He went to Jerusalem knowing what it was about to cost him. He went to the garden and he went to the cross. Why? Because he was compelled to go where no one else will go. And that is what the gospel does in us. It moves us to go where no one else will go. But I think in order for this to happen, there's two things we have to recognize as believers. There's two realizations we have to hold on to and recognize if we're going to be willing 
to go where others will not go. The first is this. We must recognize our own spiritual poverty. We must recognize our own spiritual poverty. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I have to live in a recognition that I am spiritually poor, that my condition apart from Christ is one of a hopeless spiritual poverty and depravity. And here's the good news. There is nothing I can do to fix it. Romans 3.23 says what? For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is to say this, none of us are immune to this disease. We all have it. And we understand that when Jesus was talking about the sick in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, when he said, um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. We're not the well. We're the sick. We're the ones in need. When he's talking about, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners, that's me. That's me. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5? I said earlier he preached the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. The first part of that sermon is called the Beatitudes. And one of the first things he says to that multitude of people gathered on the hillside and his disciples who are listening, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What, is, what does that mean? It means blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty because they are perfectly positioned to receive the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually poor because they are perfectly positioned now to receive the kingdom of heaven. They've come to, when, when I recognize my spiritual poverty, when I recognize this, I'm able to recognize there is something I need that is deeper, something stronger, something more satisfying. I think David came to a recognition of this in Psalm 34. Remember, David was the king, okay? He had everything. He had the nice robes. He had the pretty sweet crib. He had everything you could imagine. He never had too much month at the end of the money. Never. It was never an issue for him. No bill collectors called. That never happened at David's house. Never. And yet, in Psalm 34, verse 6, here's what David said. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And then two verses later in verse 8, he says, So taste and see that the Lord is good. David said, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him. David knew his true condition. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who recognize their spiritual poverty. And listen, there is only one thing that qualifies me to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and it is this, that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the qualification. That's it. We must know our true condition if we're going to go where others will not go. And recognizing our own spiritual poverty allows us to recognize the next thing, which is their greatest need. We must recognize their greatest need. When we recognize our own spiritual poverty, it positions us to move past the exterior past their sinful behavior, past their struggles, and past their rebellion to see them the way we should see ourselves. Poor sinners in need, we need, in need of a Savior to see their greatest need. Remember when you were a kid 
and uh, your brother or sister would call you a name. And uh, there were always two great comebacks. One was, I know you are, but what am I? Right? Still a classic. Um, then there was a second one, always my favorite, takes one to know one. Remember that? Takes one to know one. Listen, you want to know how I can tell who a sinner is? Because I am one. You want to know how I can see people when they're hurting? Because I am one. You want to know how I see people who need Jesus? Because I am one. Recognizing our own spiritual poverty positions us to see their greatest need. God help us if we ever let someone struggle be the thing that keeps us from engaging them with the gospel. There was this pastor back in the 18th century named Joseph Hart. And uh, Joseph Hart wrote this great hymn that many of you may have heard called Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. You ever heard that hymn? So a few of you have. The title's a real pick-me-up. I know, it gets you fired up. Uh, <laughs> but he wrote this hymn called Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. I want you to hear the lyrics of this. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity and love and power. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. And if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. So I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms and in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. There is someone in this room who believes that they're going to tarry until they're better. And when they're better, they'll come to Jesus. And I'm telling you, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Why? Because sin only moves one direction. Rebellion only moves one direction. We never get better. We only get worse. I'm telling you, come today. Come today. Right where you are, arise and come to Jesus. How, what do I know will happen? He will embrace you in his arms. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The gospel positions us to see what others cannot see and to go where others will not go. Here's the last thing we're going to take away and that is this. The gospel gives what nothing else can give. It gives what nothing else can give. And what is that? It is a life transforming, sin forgiving, all satisfying relationship with God Almighty. It is what, what each one of us who are in Christ have experienced and it should compel us then to see it experienced in others. And I think we see this transformation begin to happen immediately in Matthew. If you look back at Matthew chapter 9, right there in the first verse that we looked at, verse 9, it says, And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. He rose and followed. No hesitation. None. If we look again at Luke's um, parallel account of this in Matthew chapter 5, if you start in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 5, if you start in verse 27, it says this. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Again, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, 
follow me. And then listen to this. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Notice what Luke said. It says, and Matthew left everything. When Jesus saw him, he was at the tax booth. It was certainly covered in tax documents, receipts, scales, and you better know, plenty of money. I imagine there were people standing around. He was probably telling people what to do. And yet when Jesus called him, the Bible says he left everything and followed him. He left his job. He left his livelihood. He left that table full of money in his former life. I believe that the moment that Matthew stood up from that tax booth, he was saved. I believe that. Why do I believe that? Because from that moment until the end of his life, he followed Jesus Christ. He wasn't perfect. But from the moment that Jesus said, follow me, and he stood up, his life was changed forever. He was never the same. And listen, there are times when I think people, just in their spiritual journey, are trying to determine whether or not there's been that moment in their life when they've truly given their heart to Jesus. And one of the questions I will always ask is, has there ever been a time when you recognized you needed a Savior and you met Jesus, and though you haven't been perfect from that time to this time, you've never been the same? I'm not asking if you've been perfect. I'm asking, have you never been the same? And so I'm asking you this morning, has there been that moment in your life where you met Jesus Christ and from that moment to this moment, you haven't been perfect, but you have never been the same? That is what happened in Matthew's life. How can such a transform transformation take place in the life of a crooked, selfish, betraying robber? Here's why. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ gives what nothing else can give it is an all-satisfying feast, and it is a feast that immediately begins to put the taste of sin out of flavor in our mouths. I know I don't look like it, and that's fine. I, I don't look like a guy who enjoys snacks, right? And so, uh, you know, fast food or junk food, but the truth is every now and then, you know, I do. And so, here's the deal with that. For that moment... It, it tastes really good, right? But there's nothing of value going in. There's no nutritional benefit being gained, which means in a very short amount of time, my body is going to long for something again to try to fill the void that the junk food couldn't fill. That's what sin does. Sin says, hey, I'll satisfy. <clears throat> I'll satisfy. Maybe this time it'll be the time that it satisfies, and then it never is. And listen to me, those of you who are trying to manage your sin or believing that this time will be the time that it satisfies, it never will. Why? Because the gospel gives what nothing else can give. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that satisfies and immediately begins to put out of taste in your mouth the unsatisfying temptations of sin. It doesn't mean we never mess up. But it means we've never, we will never be the same. Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And in Romans chapter 6, I want you to see what he says and how he talks through what this transformation really looks like. Romans chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves uh, of righteousness. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. That is what sin does, believer. That is what it does. Sin leads to more sin. It only goes one way. He says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification because that is what the gospel does. The gospel moves us to righteousness, to purity, to holiness, and it leads to a deeper, meaningful, more satisfying connection to God Almighty. And in verse 20, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to uh, sanctification and its end, bless the Lord, is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the transformation. That is what the gospel does. It satisfies where nothing else can. It moves us out of darkness into light. It moves us from slave to free, from sinner to sanctified. And it, it gives what nothing else can give. And believer, you know and I know that there are people in our circles of influence, brothers and sisters, neighbors, family, sons and daughters, people that we work with who are in desperate need of that all-satisfying gospel. And so if you have experienced it, we ought to be compelled to give it. Do you believe that? That is what who's your one is all about. That is what it's about. God, who in my life needs the all-satisfying work of the gospel? Listen, I know that personal evangelism can be difficult. I get it. It can be awkward. Do you know why it's been awkward for me in the past? because I have a tendency to make it about myself. Here's what I mean. Uh, I'm afraid they'll reject me. I'm afraid they'll think something bad of me. Maybe they won't be my friend. Maybe it'll just be too awkward and it'll harm the relationship. I make it about me. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, those first few verses. I just want you to see what it is. It was Jesus that passed by where Matthew was. It was Jesus that saw him at the tax booth. It was Jesus that called him to come and follow. It was Jesus that broke through every social norm. It was Jesus that went to his house. It was Jesus that saw the hearts of the Pharisees. It was Jesus that declared the kingdom of God. Never forget, this isn't about us. It isn't about us. The message we have is about one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. 
So believer, are you seeing what others cannot see? Are you going where others will not go? And are you seeing the gospel do what nothing else can do and give what nothing else can give? This morning, if, if you're here and you would just simply say, I have not met Jesus. <laughs> I, I have not given my life to him. I haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I don't know what it means to be satisfied because I keep, like the woman at the well, I keep going back to the shallow well over and over again. But I want, like her, when Jesus said, if you knew who it was you were asking, you would ask him for water and I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. Someone in this room this morning needs to come forward and take me by the hand or one of our ministers by the hand and say, I need living water. If that is you, I am telling you, have the courage to step up and step out. Maybe this morning you're here and your confession would be, I have sat on the sidelines of personal evangelism for too long. I have taken the easy way out and I have not seen my neighbor. I have not seen what others would not see. I've refused to go where others will not go. Then come and confess. Just come and pray. Beg the Lord to give you that one and beg him to give you the courage to go and engage them in a gospel conversation and invite them into a personal relationship with Jesus. Whatever it is that God is doing in your life, I'm asking you to respond, to be obedient and to respond. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll worship. Jesus, we love you. And I'm just so very thankful, God, this morning that you have loved us and given yourself for us. God, I am so thankful that while I was still a sinner, you died for me. You didn't wait for me to get it right. You died for me while I was far from you. So, Lord, I, I am so grateful for that. And I am praying right now that as we respond, as we worship, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move in power, that you would come and take the seat of honor, that you would move in our hearts. And whatever it is you are calling us to do, God, give us the courage to step out, to step up, to step forward, and to obey. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship. Let's respond.